0: Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Meet Me Athlete Radio. Anna Pippas, thank you so much for, for joining us this afternoon and, and being willing to, to share your story. Um, of course, you are known for EasyAnimalFree.com, the the author the photographer the, the chef behind all these wonderful uh, treats that you create and, and an awesome blog um, and you have a background in farmed animal uh, protection law and legal work and also a background in psychology so I think you are uniquely set or you're uniquely capable of having a very interesting conversation about why people are going plant-based what's stopping them and and what might accelerate things you know because so much of what we eat um is a legal matter uh most people don't don't realize so i'm super excited to get into to all that thank you for joining us
1: yeah thank you so much for having me it's great to talk to you
0: so um let's just dig in i don't know where to start um (laughs) what why don't we uh what came first law Or animal law, which I assume the animal law came with veganism. So there's a combination of like pick your beginning, like whatever feels right in terms of starting your story and and tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, and that's a great question because I know a lot of people who decide to go to law school because they want to become an animal lawyer and that wasn't really my story. I went to law school, knowing that I wanted to have a positive impact on the world, Um, I had a background in psychology and at that time, this is. Fifteen years ago, now more than that, I um, I was working as a social worker. I was a crisis counselor, and I was experiencing for myself the ways that law and policy were failing my clients. So most of my clients were impoverished, were living, um, were working in sex work, were living very difficult lives, and I felt that the work that I was doing was really sort of cleaning up problems that, if only I could go upstream, maybe I could help prevent them in the first place, and so that is what turned my um perspective onto law in the first place because prior to that i really hadn't i didn't know much about lawyers and i didn't know much about law but i sort of had this idea that it was a profession that was for people who wanted to make a lot of money or defend criminals or um just i i really didn't know very much about it but um i i learned about actually from my brother who is a lawyer and was telling me you would love law school. I was like, absolutely not. He said, you'll make you love practicing law. You'd make a great lawyer, and I was like, definitely not. Never in a million years. And he's very persuasive as a lawyer. Um, and he put he t- he told me all of the different ways that law can be used as um, as an avenue for change. I suspect now maybe this is more known, or maybe it's just that. The world that I live in is more knowledgeable about law and policy, but at that time this was really novel information to me and to seal the deal, he told me about two friends that he had from law school who were working as animal rights lawyers. And I was like whoa there's such a thing as an animal rights lawyer, keep in mind, this is a long time ago now, now I think that would be less surprising to most of us. Um, But that's what really got my attention, so I did go to law school, knowing that animal rights law was a thing, but not necessarily setting out to do that. I just wanted to make changes. So while I was in law school, I volunteered and then later worked for my law clinics, um, refugee and immigration law clinic, I think that was redundant. Um, And I also worked for my law school's reproductive and sexual health law program as a research assistant. So I really was involved in all kinds of areas of law where we could have a social impact. But it wasn't until I started studying animal rights law, which was in the first term of my second year, anyone who's know is familiar with law school knows that your first year is foundational courses so in your second year you start to take your um your elective courses and right away i took animal law and i it was like just one of these like oh like the clouds part and it was like yes this makes so much sense like i was really shocked by what i was learning about how animals were treated here i was in a urban law school in a progressive city all of my classmates were progressive on most issues. I mean, nobody seriously debated whether we should have human rights, whether, you know, sexism sexism and racism are bad. Yes, we, of course there are issues where we're falling short and you know, we can debate what are the best policy responses to address these issues, but nobody seriously debates with you, virtually nobody seriously debates with you at least in these environments where I was in. That these are these are good, emotionally good. Yes, of course people should be treated fairly and compassionately and with justice. But when it came to animal issues, I really saw how the the, the reasoning just stopped. It just stopped when it came to animals. All of a sudden people were coming up with irrational arguments and excuses and and i thought okay this is where i need to focus my attention this i cared about the issue a lot and i also just saw a real gap in how people were thinking about the issue and i've always been kind of an impact first person i wanted to make a difference i went to law school because i wanted to make a difference and i thought human light, human rights law jobs are competitive. I mean, there's people from the top law schools all around the world competing for these coveted jobs with the United Nations. But when it comes to animal law, nobody is fighting for the animals. And specifically, I focused on farm animals because there are just so many of them. So in, I know the numbers in Canada, they keep going up, but it's like 800 million animals per year are killed for food. Compare that with companion animals. We have like maybe 15 or 20 million pets. I don't have the numbers at my fingertips anymore. I used to know them more um, contemporaneously. But um, animals that are being researched, is something like 3 million animals are in research labs. So comparatively speaking, I mean, farm animals are just far and away the hugest victims of concern. And when it comes to the, the type of suffering, it's also really extreme. It's not just um, sort of like at the margins, like, well, it could be a little better, but like their lives are pretty good. It's like, no, like from birth to death, even before birth, because we breed suffering into their genetics, it's just written into the script from birth to death and everything in between the growth and the transport and the handling and the conditions and the air that they breathe, the confinement, it's all misery. So that's when I hopped on the train to animal rights law and I sort of had a meandering um, path because at that time, animal law wasn't really a field. So I had to decide at the end of law school, do I wanna be a lawyer who does animal issues on the side, or do I want to, or animal issues as part of my practice, or do I want to be an animal activist, an advocate who does law as part of my practice? And I had two job offers. One was from um, a nonprofit charity called Mercy for Animals, which was just starting up operations in Canada, and one was from um, Uh, like a progressive law firm, then I would be practicing in the areas of mental health law, and I would maybe get to sort of like work on animal issues, maybe work it in, and I decided I'm all in on animal issues. I'm all in on specifically veganism. I really, at that time, I was like, if only people know (laughs) what's happening to animals. yeah so I, I decided to take this pathway of um, of doing whatever it whatever I could however I could make myself useful useful in defending farmed animals and on specifically on promoting and making it easier for people to go vegan to eat more plant-based foods um, to yeah so that's so much, there. The, the so, long so much there so much there. Um,
0: well where to begin uh, j- just... To clarify quickly, um, your brother brought up animal rights. That seemed to be a little bit of a light bulb. Then he got into the class. Like, was that just because you're an animal lover, or was the seeds of like vegetarianism, veganism planted earlier? And so when the connection was made with with uh, you know legal work and like did that, is that what kind of? I'm just curious if you can clarify where where did that come into your life.
1: Yeah, that's another great question. So I did go vegetarian as a, as a kid, as a young person. Um, I, but it was a very simple calculation. I didn't know anything about farming back then when I was 10, 12 years old. I just, I think what happened was I met a vegetarian. This is like in the early 90s. So there's no internet. There's no like vegetarian. But I met a vegetarian and I thought, oh, that's a thing. Well, I want to. I want to be that too um and my lovely parents who loved steak and burgers were accommodated me and sort of um allowed and also just sort of supported me in expressing my values in that way i think they were like okay but proud of me at the same time um and now as a parent myself i'm like that was (laughs) really nice of you um to you know cooking separate meals and a whole separate grocery shopping list reading about it books so Um, So fortunately, I had the supportive parents and all along, I've always been um, not just an animal lover, but I've always really had strong relationship with animals. I think animal lover doesn't quite capture who I've been my whole life. I've always noticed animals. I've worried about them sometimes when other people think that think that what they see is cute. I'm sometimes going like, are they okay? Like, um, I don't know, a, a YouTube video. Maybe there's like a just off the top of my head like a kitten spinning around on a ceiling fan and people are like oh that's so funny and I'm like oh that poor animal is so dizzy stop it get them off that kind of thing and it's always been like that for me I'm with I notice birds and I always so um so yeah I think with my brother it was two things it was the fact that I was an animal lover and also just the fact that I was pretty um I was pretty clear that I wanted to have a positive impact and and I was like, no, law is not for me. And he was like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, here is this example of these women. And it was just really luck and coincidence that it happened to be these animal rights lawyers that he reached on for this example of this cool work that they were doing. They were, he went to law school in the United States and they were working in DC lobbying government. And I was like, cool, that sounds like, so impactful and like so unique like i tell me more kind of thing so yeah it was it was definitely a little bit of both
0: very cool um i know we want to get to the the yummy treats on your website and the transition away from uh law but i'm i'm just so fascinated in it and uh um i'm uh, let's see uh there's some there's some uh Um, more in-depth questions I could ask, but uh, I'm I'm curious. uh, um, So obviously you've been exposed to uh, the the most gruesome details about how, you know, uh, animal agriculture actually looks and feels day to day. Um, I'm curious what you think about uh, humane products, you know, the ones stamped with like Pasture raised, uh, you know, uh, eggs, for instance, right? Like, um, and and I'm, uh, I can certainly share my opinion, but I'm I'm curious, since you've really gone deep into this, if you have an, uh, if you have an opinion, is, is that a step in the right direction, or is it sort of placating all of our moral protests that you know, and it, it makes us feel better, so it's actually just perpetuating, you know, this tragedy because like it's somewhat better. Curious what you think about it.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it can be both. I think it's complicated, but let me just say that yes. Yeah, so, so while for the ten years that I was working in farmed animal law specifically, the a big part of my job was to um, assist with undercover investigations. So I reviewed. Countless hours of footage and I've written legal complaints. So I've really sat through a lot and, and discussed, you know, at length with investigators exactly what's going on, what are they seeing, what do we need to include in the complaint, what violates laws, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. So yes, I do feel like I have really experienced, I've really seen, and I can really say with confidence that what's happening inside animal agriculture is probably worse than what most people even think. I th- and I think some people say they look at the three minute video and they think, well, that's only three minutes. It was shot over the span of a month or maybe two months. And honestly, it's only three minutes because that's all the public really has appetite for. I mean, there's hundreds of hours of footage of terrible things. And more than that. What you're not seeing when you see the clips is you're not seeing just the sheer boredom in these conditions. The animals are just there in the same environment and it's hour after hour, day after day, week after week until, you know, finally mercifully it comes to an end. Um, and so, yes, what we've also seen is that even when we go undercover into certified humane operation there are still things that are happening that the average member of the public i think would find horrifying so there's and and it's it's the it's the conditions themselves so the things like the confinement etc um that gets a little better under most humane certification programs but not a huge amount better so it goes from this amount of space to this amount of space let's say for a chicken or maybe this amount of space but it's not like i think what most people think is it goes from this amount of space to You know, endless, a farm, a pasture, but it doesn't. You also have, in a um, commercial operation, you have tens of thousands of animals. It's not a small thing. I mean, in Canada, I know probably many of your listeners are in the United States, but the numbers that I know are in Canada. So our population in Canada is about 35 million. Farmed animals are 800 million. That's 800 million, not including aquatic animals that are on a farm in a given year. I mean, these farms are massive operations. Then there's also even under the best humane farm, well, under most humane certified farms, you've got the animals are bred to have certain profitable traits. So cows are bred to produce much more milk, which leads to mastitis and infection. Broiler chickens, chickens raised for meat are bred to grow much more quickly, so they have lameness and cardiovascular issues. Chickens raised to lay eggs are bred to lay 350 eggs per year. So they have issues with calcium depletion. Um, and because of the, the breeding, it causes like a certain kind of aggression in them that's related specifically to their breeding, et cetera. So yes, there now there's always gonna be a yeah, but, right? So you can say, yeah, but I buy heritage breed animals. And so there's always gonna be, so it's like for every kind of individual whatever the sticking point is, we can get into the weeds on like, well, what are the specific details? Is it what you think it is? Are you going with your eyes wide open? Is this a bunch of marketing? Um, But I think for the most part, the vast majority of what you're finding in a standard supermarket is going to be probably not what you think it is, and probably still containing misery that you just haven't even imagined. Um, The quality of the air, the treatment at at by the by, the the workers, the underpaid workers. Um, the slaughterhouses are the same slaughterhouses. Um, you know that said, then you can point to yes. I really do think that there are some farmers who are who have in- integrity, who are trying to make things better, and who are um, probably you know decent people that you could sit down and have a cup of tea with and and find something in common with. Even in these situations, though. I remain vegan because it is not necessary. And it still involves commodifying animals, subjecting them to slaughter. And at the end of the day, when animals are used for profit, there will be exploitation of that model. And so for me, the easiest way to deal with that is to just boycott the system altogether. It's good for the environment. It's good for my health. And it's just the easiest way not to have to kill animals. If I want to have salmon for dinner, that means I have to kill a salmon. I don't want to have to kill an animal to have dinner. So even if you can find a best case scenario, it's still, you know, something that you don't need to do. And the other question that I think was first posed by Kant or one of these philosophers was as an ethical question what would happen if everybody in the world did what I what I did? And that helps you to decide your ethical position. Now, if everybody in the world were to only buy sort of the truly the most humane possible, um, could we feed the world? We would need an enormous amount of land. We would you it would be very expensive. Um, I mean, you know, sure, it's possible. And I think there's people out there who are primarily plant-based and who once in a while are seeking out these better alternatives. And I mean, that's not my audience. <laughs> so I, it's not how I choose to live my life. I'm, But I'm glad that people are out there asking those questions and grappling with the ethics of it and trying to be good people. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. But I, I mean, I do think that What's happening more often is people are going to the supermarket and going, chickpea flour or eggs? I don't know how to use chickpea flour. So those eggs, they say pasture raised, good enough. I'm just gonna grab them and go, and go on, right? Because we're busy. I don't think what's actually happening is people are literally driving out to farm. I mean, it would take a lot of work raising chickens and anyone who has backyard chickens or rescued hens can tell you that raising animals in a loving compassionate way is a lot of work i mean that's why farm animal sanctuaries are always in need of donations it's a full-time job it's very expensive and so it just it's not a very good business model to treat animals like members of the family it's also not sustainable psychologically so another thing that i think is okay now what would happen if i'm asking farmers to treat animals like members of the family the way that i treat my cats snuggle with them give them a name give them a little head scratch chickens are very affectionate they they can be right they can be very affectionate they can come live in the house i have a friend who sleeps with a rescued chicken she's very comfortable sleeping on his pillow with them um but what, so what would that say if they needed to raise these animals as as friends, as pets, but then they kill them? Oh, that's brutal. Like, I mean, can you imagine raising your your cat or your dog, in a in a loving way and then sending them off to slaughter in order to be like a meal? I think about I had a, a cat one time get eaten by a coyote and she was my best friend, like cuddled with me all the time. We were always together. She had such a feisty personality. I mean, just filled with personality. And she got eaten by a coyote. And I was just horrified that this little creature who had so much personality and so much love and meant so much to me, I had thousands of photos of her, that she could just be gone as a meal, one meal, one meal. What is that one meal to that coyote? Now, of course, this is the cruelties of nature and whatever. I mean, the coyotes, coyotes got to eat. Coyote's got a coyote. So that's you know, I'm not angry with the coyotes. They're amazing animals who we have to coexist with. It's my fault for not protecting my animal better. But still, just the idea that this life can be snuffed out, can can experience suffering and death for the sake of a meal, as I, I'm just like, just eat something else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny when you when you put it that way. And uh, um, the the dehumanization process. know although they are not humans right it it actually goes both ways i think there's a there's a dehumanization that happens with these uh factory farm workers um and the psychology uh and and i should say the psychological damage the impact um of having to dispatch thousands of animals a day you know is is an incredible toll on on the human life not to mention the animals but but like you say you know you, you can't create an affection you can't see them as animals you have to see them as as objects and um there, there's so much to that we could dig into there but but you have a a span of work so we have to to cover more um uh, you made a decision to i I think maybe it separates the wrong word but to refocus on, Maybe a different uh, avenue to, to fight the same battle. Um, tell us about that decision and uh, and and kind of what you're working on today.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Another great question. You're good at asking questions, Matt. That's um,
0: so all I have to do here. I just this is it's it's really easy on this side of camera. I've been on that side of the camera. It's so much worse. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So it, went, it kind of happened organically. So I was um, working as a farm animal lawyer, still doing the work. And I started an Instagram account on the side to share what my family was eating. And this was, um, let's see, it was probably five or six years ago. Can that be right? No, maybe like four years ago. So I started an Instagram account. No, no, no. Five years ago. Sorry, pardon me. I'm I'm doing the the years math in my head with two. It's like I don't know what what's been going (laughs) on. um
0: I, I don't know what day it is mostly I just go over whatever's <laughs> on my camera I also have two kids so I know the feeling uh, and yeah. you know and, and in a pandemic in particular it's really Groundhog's Day because like there's no right no no travel no leaving the house kind of so it's just like you know so I'm I'm with you somewhere between five and ten years you know just
1: ballpark, in- ballpark it yeah it exactly For today
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so I started um, an Instagram account to share what I was feeding my family, and but and I continued to do the legal work on the side. And I, I never intended for it to become more than what it was, it was really just because so many people would say, I'm interested in what you're saying, and um, what you're saying seems right, and, but what do you eat, like I have no idea what to eat. And I was, at first I was a bit baffled by this, I was like, just like get a cookbook, or like Google it, it's so easy. But what i came to realize is that it's almost because there's such an overwhelming volume of information that it can be difficult for people to parse through it and it's time consuming i mean people are busy we have limited mental bandwidth our minds are full of work and family and netflix and everything else that's going on in our lives and so to take on another mental task can be just exhausting it can just be too much when to stay with what you know can be a lot easier and so what i thought was missing was just what has kind of what you see in these nowadays, or maybe it was back then, but I didn't know, but like what I, what I eat in a day type of thing. I was like, instead of. creating recipes. I'm just going to share what I'm eating. Here's like the snacks that I'm feeding to my kids. Here's what I'm packing for lunch. Here's what I make for dinner when I just cannot and I need food now and it can't be it can't be complicated, that kind of thing. So I was just sharing like real life meals, um, which I felt like there was maybe a shortage of. So not like created content, not like beautiful stuff and nothing like what do people, because I've always been curious about that too. Like, okay, what do people actually eat? Like, you know, like how often do you have cereal for dinner? Am I right? Like that kind of, what are people really eating? And like, tell me how much hummus you go through. So, and that's the type of, (laughs) I feel like people needed to, needed to understand sort of like the real life aspect of it and so I just, I didn't set out to become like a recipe creator I was just like here's what's for breakfast today kind of thing. And that just developed I think people responded very well to it. Um, I also happen to love cooking and I think I'm pretty decent at it. I, um, it's sort of my creative outlet. But more than that, and especially now as my family has grown and now I have non-breastfeeding eaters who are really eating a lot um, and who have like opinions about food and everything like that. So just the idea of like managing a kitchen. So I used to, when I started cooking, I would be like, okay, let's have like homemade ravioli for dinner. And then it would be like, you go and you get the ingredients, and you make ravioli and like three hours later, you're like eating the ravioli. And you're like, like, I know, you know, yeah, I never want to cook again. And the next day you're ordering takeout and then the leftovers, maybe you don't know what to do with the rest of the sauce and it gets moldy. And so it's not just like finding a recipe and cooking it. It's also like managing a kitchen, kitchen management. And this is just especially true for, for, for young families. And the reason that I think that's so is because young people, eh, they're falling back on takeout or just familiar staples maybe families with kids are more established in their habits once the kids get a little older, but especially for young families, they just are like, we need to eat at home. It needs to be healthy. It needs to be quick. And like, I need ideas. I need to, to know where to start. So I just, I have a real passion for this topic. It's what I've been living through. My kids are eight and five now. So I, we're very well established, but for the last, let's say eight years, since I became a mother, learning how to manage a family kitchen on a budget, reducing waste, making sure you have things in stock, knowing how to use leftovers, all of these kinds of things you're sort of learning. And I thought, can't, can't we sort of like break this down? Can't we educate around this? Um, and so my Instagram account kept growing and growing. And then finally a publisher showed some interest in it and was like, do you want to write a book? And at first I was like, no, <laughs> I'm very busy and I don't, I don't want to write a book. I just like started this Instagram account to, to show my hummus, <laughs> to show how much hummus I eat. Um, I'm kidding about that. Although only sort of kidding. Um, hummus is,
0: is, about, a, is a thing for vegans. I'm, I'm with you. It makes, it makes everything better. I mean, I, honestly, I had hummus and quinoa and avocado for lunch today. Yeah, i relatively plain quinoa. There's some veggies in there, you know. But but threw some some hummus on the side and opened an avocado. I had zero time. I was on a phone call while I was preparing it. And but somehow, you know, you add a little hummus and and you know,
1: tastes good. Five stars. I know exactly. you get it anywhere. It's easy to make if you feel like breaking out the food processor. I mean, it's just like the world's perfect food. I say it's the food that I would bring to a desert island if I was being banished to a desert island. Um, oh, not you, not the worst not- decision. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've thought about it. It's also very nutritious. <laughs> so let's not get in the weeds on that. But hummus, call me. So. <laughs> So I did, I did, it, it definitely wasn't, I mean, I share that I had sort of initially said no, to only, only to illustrate the fact that it really was not what I was planning on doing. But the thing that happened along the way is that I found the work that I was doing with, with, um, in farm animal advocacy was, first of all, it was very draining because you're dealing with a lot of very sad things and you're dealing with a lot of um, sort of like very frustrating aspects of humans, both the people who are working in the farms and the people who are receiving the messaging. Um, and I found it. I was getting tired. And also, I don't, I'm not really, I like to be pretty calm and I'm not generally a very angry person. And I found that I was just kind of like inhabiting this like very angry place. I mean, the government was infuriating, the big like farm companies were infuriating, the public was infuriating. And at the same time, the fury of, of people like, you know you release an investigation and people are like this is outrageous these criminals need to be locked up and i at the same time was like wait a minute like do they need to be locked up i mean like yes of course like they've done terrible things and they need to be held accountable but at the same time like this is the system that that we've created a lot of these workers are underprivileged in some way whether it's from their migrants or maybe they're they're young men who it's their only employment option their ex-convicts who I mean, there's a lot of ways that these are, like, kind of the, the outcasts of society. And I felt like it maybe it wasn't very fair that there was, the cycle was undercover investigation, public outrage, no real meaningful change from government, repeat. And I thought, I don't know if I'm, like... It, now, I want to say that it is very important work and it needs to be done. And the work is important because it keeps showing people like, OK, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is what's happening in our own backyard. And this is what it looks like, even if people don't you know, fully engage with it. They're getting a note like things are not all old McDonald's farm here in the farming industry. And that's a really important message. Um, and some of our work as well, we would do things like um, you know, false advertising complaints about companies that were like depicting this bucolic imagery on their packaging, when in fact that the farm looks nothing like that. So there is really important work to be done there. But at the same time that I was continuing to do that and just feeling sort of like it's kind of like eroding my personality and like eating my good vibes. And I don't know, like, is this the right path? Like, it's just like a cycle of fury. It's like being on Twitter all the time kind of thing. And at the same time, I was doing this work with food and it was like people were finding me and people were feeling inspired and people were wanting to make change. And our connections were positive and our connections were progressive, moving in the right direction. And I just felt like, wow, like this is, this is the vibe that I want to be experiencing. And not only that, but it's a real solution. I mean, I was hearing from countless people, at least one person a day, like, I have changed the way that I eat because of you. And that's all I've ever wanted to do. I mean, as a as a farmed animal lawyer, I can tell you firsthand, like no amount of changing laws is gonna make a meaningful impact on farmed animals. The thing that will make a difference for farmed animals is don't eat them or eat fewer of them. That's what will make a difference. You don't go vegan, fine. Eat one less farmed animal a week and go from there. That'll make much more of a difference than lobbying for changes to farmed animal laws. That's not true for, for all areas. So if you work in zoos, yes, we can get bans on zoos. Public sentiment has really changed on that. If you're working in animal research, absolutely the worst of the worst experiments need to be phased out because those are really atrocious. But when it comes to farmed animals, the most meaningful difference we can make is to stop eating them. And there is law and policy work that can be done in that area. And I was doing some of that and I probably will do some of that, that again. And that is path something like what the Good Food Institute is doing. So pathways towards making it easier for plant based companies to access the space or working to just, you know, work with schools and governments to um, ensure policies are sort of plant-based friendly. So I, as a person who eats a whole foods plant-based diet, the whole foods part is for my health. I mean, I'm, I love all of the, 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 the growth in vegan businesses because I know it's, it's good news for animals, but that's not really how I eat. I eat lentils. I eat pinto beans. So that's the work that I'm passionate about. And that's what I wanna share. When people are like, How do you take the chicken off your plate and put on like chickpeas? Do you just like scoop them out of the can? And I'm like, no, like let me show you. Um, so that that's what I what I found i wanted to do what i was enjoying the most and it was really sort of rejuvenating me and giving me sort of energy to keep on going so that's where i am now i've been working on this book it's pretty much finished now we're just in like the last few passes of proofreading and i hope that i've managed to capture you know what i set out to do which is like how to manage the kitchen so it's laid out according to like themed nights and there's like bits and pieces so i've got a chapter on like Um, how to make a bowl. And it's like the different components of the bowl. So like how to prepare the grain or starch, different ways to prepare and season the legumes, different ways to prepare and season the vegetables, sauces, and then it's, you know, and then I have a part that's like how to put the bowl together. And then there's also a chart with like suggested combinations. So instead of recipes, I wanted to share like, how do we really make it work? And these are, this is really how we make it work. I mean, these aren't recipes that i made up. These are recipes that we are really eating and that I wrote down the quantities for. Um, yeah and it's like you know same for the lunch chapter it's like packed lunches and quick lunches portable lunches um, and on and on I could go on (laughs) (laughs) well it it
0: sounds awesome and and so needed and I uh, appreciate that you call out the quantities because I think that when you're eating a whole foods plant-based diet one of the most surprising thing is the sheer quantity that you eat you know we always go to uh restaurants and I'm sure you've been there I should say back when we used to go to restaurants um you know and you like order sides because like you you know there there were no vegan dishes so you you get some of the steamed broccoli and you get the beans and you have chips and like you're creating little smorgasbord um and and it's great right but then they provide you like four pieces of broccoli and you're like no 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 I need like you know a, a large bowl of each of these things, you know. So anyway, um,
1: like all different way of eating. Yeah, yeah. anyway. Um,
0: but but I love how you're you're describing it. It really is managing the the kitchen because you know, like any business process that you manage, you know, you have resources and and there are processes and and you know you have to manage how it all jives day after day, you know, with some thought or else it can easily, you know, as, uh, as you it kind of degrade and you're left with, you know, takeout, um, or in my household pasta. Um, cause like you just, you, you know, you know, we, we don't eat gluten. So we have a steady supply of, uh, of gluten-free pasta. That's just always our, our go-to and it's made out of chickpeas. And so we like kind of rationalize that it's, you know, relatively, healthy, maybe, Um, and then we just pack in the veggies and like, you know, uh, rotate sauces and you've got to go to. But I think for a lot of people, developing that know-how is difficult. There's a learning curve for sure. So what, aside from buying your forthcoming book, um, what, what is your number one recommendation for people who haven't quite figured it out? Maybe they have family, maybe they have kids, and they're looking at him like every night is a horrible chore. Uh, And as you say, like you can't, you can't open up a a cookbook every single night. Like it just, it's too time consuming. So what's your recommendation for those people?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I have been there and the way that I eliminated that three o'clock creeping feeling of dread, like Ugh, what's for dinner you know that what's for dinner dread that creeps on every like afternoon that you need to make dinner the way that i eliminated that eliminated that from my life was implementing meal themes now i had tried my best to become a meal planner i would sit down on the weekend and i would sit down with my cookbooks and i would make a list of meals and i would write down the ingredients and then we'd go to the store to get the groceries what I found was that it was just such an epic pain in the butt because it, it really felt like a chore. And then we would get thrown off the meal plan anyway, because things would come up. You would have, in pre-pandemic times, you would have a meal out, you would have friends over, you wouldn't feel like eating what you'd planned. You'd, have, you'd be tired because your babies weren't sleeping or got a cold or something like that. I mean, so many things can come up and you wanna have that flexibility. And then what would happen is if you didn't that weekend sit down to do your meal plan, you were out of town, you had visitors, you were busy, you would, have, you would start the week with no plan. So the way that I got around this whole de- de- horrible conundrum, because it really can be very frustrating. I mean, it really is like one of those daily things. It's like a paper cut there. It's very underrated. <laughs> I started doing meal plan, uh, meal themes. So I played around with the meal themes that work for our family. But here's what our meal themes are now and have been for several years. Monday night is pasta. We do a cream sauce made from nuts, a red sauce. We do um, a pesto of some kind or a rosé sauce. That's the main pastas that we have. Sometimes I'll make a lasagna, but that's often not a weeknight meal just because it can be time consuming, although I do a very simple lasagna recipe because I'm all about like easy. My, My site is easy, animal free. That's for a reason. I don't have time or the desire to be spending a whole bunch of time doing kitchen projects, not at this season of my life. So Mondays are pasta. Before
0: before you go to Tuesday, what is a rosé sauce? That sounds Today oh,
1: is that not a um maybe it's like being in Canada where people speak French, but rosé just is pink is French for pink. So it mean it's a combination of like a cream and a red sauce. That's, um, what, that's
0: what I was guessing. I've just never I've never ooh. that is our go-to actually, because you know you put in a little cheesiness to get the richness, and then you know, a whole bunch of the red sauce, which in theory is a little healthier. I had just never heard of it called a rosé sauce, um,
1: oh, which is not
0: Look, I'm not a culinary genius by any stretch of the imagination. So right. I, I wouldn't say that that's uh, you know, uh, a big surprise, but a very cool name and I'm super excited because I'm probably going to make that tonight and uh, impress my wife when I say it's a rosé sauce.
1: So. Hey, yeah. Well, we'll have to find out if that's a regional difference or just a you thing.
0: It's probably
1: just a me thing. I don't do that much. We'll find out. Okay, so Tuesdays are bowls. So, bowls can be something like rice and beans with like a salsa or a salad. Um, Or sometimes that this is even when we'll have tacos. Not that tacos are exactly a bowl, but it's kind of like the same ingredients. Or it will be like a a chickpea saute with roasted potatoes or um, a sheet pan dinner. So, one of my favorite dinners to make is just like throw some cauliflower and potatoes and chickpeas toss them with olive oil, garlic, um, paprika, garlic powder, whatever, you don't have to chop the garlic, just use garlic powder if it's like one of those days and put it in the oven at 400 for like 30, 35 minutes. And that's dinner. You can add a salad and some sauce if you like, Um, but very simple. So that's our Tuesday bowl. And um, I I was just talking about bowls in detail, but it's like, uh, that that section of my book but it's like you've got a base so rice or polenta or quinoa or um, potatoes and then you've got your legumes so you can use tofu you can even just use hummus here that's where the hummus comes in and your quinoa bowl but some kind of legume I mean we're all trying to eat legumes and bowls are a really great place to have legumes chickpeas beans lentils whatever Wednesday nights are one pot Wednesdays that's when I make typically a, a soup or a stew so um my soups are generally either a tomato based soup or a potato based like creamy soup um or i'll do that's this is when i'll do a curry so like chickpea cauliflower curry is a big one for us my kids also really like lentils so i do a lot of um red lentil curry or like a mujadra it's an iranian essentially like lentils and rice cooked in one pot with some fried onions really really easy Uh, you can Google for a recipe on that. I don't have one on my site just now, but anyways, there's lots out there. Um, So that's our One Pot Wednesdays. And those meals are also really great for um, reheating. You can make like a big double batch and be working on that throughout the week. Chili, chili is another like really popular kind of crowd-pleasing recipe. That's our One Pot Wednesdays. Thursdays are stir fries. So that's when we have typically featuring tofu um, but it doesn't have to sometimes it'll be like peanut noodles peanut noodles are what we have on thursdays or we can do we do like an almond saute veggies and almond sauce um, that kind of thing or like a miso soup some kind of s- soup like that even though it's a one pot thing that's our stir fry thursday and other pan asian inspired meals Then usually on Friday, um, that's when the family will do like fun Fridays. So it's like burgers. The rest of my family does Beyond Burgers and that's when I just like have whatever I want. I'll make like whatever kind of like wacky culinary thing I feel like making that my kids won't eat. So I'll make like kimchi fried rice or I'll just make like a big salad just like full of greens because this is the kind of thing that I crave now that I'm almost 40 I'm like I just really want to eat salad vegans rather like vegans don't just eat salad and I'm like yeah no we don't just eat salad (laughs) (laughs) or whatever so that's just how that's just what works for my family obviously it can be different for everybody some another fun meal might be pizza or that might be a night when you want to order in or something we also have um because our meal themes worked so well for my family we started doing like lots of things on our so saturdays is when we tidy the the playroom and on fridays we also have movie night fridays so that's when we have the the burger night and movies and it's just like something that's really fun to look forward to and also we know what we're having for dinner and we have an air fryer so we make like our own fry fries (laughs) that's friday thing here then by by now we've got leftovers um and we've got like you know the weekend is here so that's when you might when it's not a pandemic you might be seeing friends or whatever you have things planned you typically typically when it's not a pandemic we'll see friends on saturday and family on sunday and so then dinner is dinner is whatever that's going to be but also by this time you've got a fridge full of leftovers so we just kind of coast through the weekend if something does need to be made i'll pick from the the list of the four themes um, or we'll just make simple things like some of our go-to's like you are pasta, or we're also a gluten-free family. Cause one of my kids is gluten intolerant. So it'll be like a, a pasta meal or, um, or like a really simple noodle dish. Cause that's what my kids like, or we'll make grilled cheese, or we'll have like a chickpea crepe, which is another one of my go tos just chickpea flour, water, salt, mix it up into a pan. That's your, that's your protein source. Then you just pair it with like some potatoes or a toast and veggies and that's your meal. So that's the type of thing that we eat. Um, and then also like or breakfast for dinner like pancakes waffles that kind of thing and that's the week taken care of so all you need is all we all i need this is what works for me all we need is four themes plus sort of like the friday fun friday theme and no real advanced planning because i can go into the grocery store and I can just kind of like catalog my meals like do I have what I need for pasta like okay I need pasta and I need some kind of sauce whatever it is if I have cashews at home I can make a sauce if I've got you know a can of tomatoes at home I can make a sauce same thing for bowls like if I have some dry lentils or hummus or whatever and some dry grains you can make a bowl Um, one pot meals as long as you've got an onion and some stuff in the pantry like you can make you can make soup out of anything um I and and if you don't think you can make soup out of anything I've got good news for you which is that one of the um sections I have in my book is how to make soup <laughs> a weeknight guide so it's just walking through how do I approach making soup off recipe. so you start with the onions and garlic and you this is how, what I add in, in what order and then the same thing with stir fries it's just you know whatever Veggies are stir fryable, which is almost anything and some rice or noodles and very simple. So you can kind of like go through it mentally. You don't need a list. It doesn't need to be very specific because whether you're stir frying like cabbage or broccoli, it doesn't make a huge difference. You don't need to have a specific shopping list for that. You just need to go to the store, buy what's fresh, make sure your pantry is stocked with what you, you know that your family likes to eat, whether that's you know lentils, rice, quinoa, pasta, whatever. For you guys, pasta, lots of it. Um, and then it, I just find it's a lot easier. So, and that's what works for our family. You know, some people might want to make their one pot meal on the Sunday and then, you know, eat that throughout the week. They might like to do meal planning. I don't do. A meal prep sunday because i don't want to waste my weekend like doing a big marathon cooking project i like to just set aside like 30 to 45 minutes four nights of the week that i know okay i'm gonna go into the kitchen and do a meaningful a meaningful job at the stove not just like a sandwich or whatever but like cook something for real um, and i do that four nights a week and i find i never get tired of it it's kind of fun you're keeping things moving along i i don't spend my my precious weekend time bulk cooking so i'm not like ugh get me out of here i'm exhausted i'm sick of this And you know, like I say all this, but that's not necessarily going to work for everyone. Again, I'm just sharing what works for me, but it's sort of zeroing in on what do you dislike about the process of feeding your family and how can you eliminate most of that while also creating some sort of like predictability and routine that's going to work for you. Um, Pasta is always an easy one, stir fry is an easy one. If your one pot meal or your bowl's meal, like you need more time for that, make your components on the Sunday if if you don't resent having to make the components on a Sunday or whatever.
0: Yeah. I, I find uh, uh, I, we share your your philosophy and uh, I have a great motto, which I stole from someone, maybe a Greek philosopher, that is there's uh, freedom and discipline. Mm-hmm. And I think you can modify yeah. that to like freedom and habit, yes. you know, or like the, 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 you know, the last thing I want to do in any given day is the decision, you know, because that's all I do all day, every day, you know. And so having routine habit that frees you from from that burden every day of deciding what am I going to eat what am I going to feed my kids and like you just know and then like you say it makes grocery shopping easier it makes cooking easier because you get really good at these these staples right everything flows from that so I, I think that is wonderful uh, advice um I know we're about out of time so I have to ask for lightning round responses but I because there's two questions that uh, I have to ask one, I read somewhere online, um, that the last thing for you to give up was cheese. Is that true? And if so, what was it that allowed you to kick that habit? Did your taste buds change or did you find, you know, a, a, a vegan, um, you know, alternative cheese that is now your go-to do you still have those cravings? I'm just, you know, curious what, what, what was your fix?
1: So when I stopped eating cheese, it was 2008, and there was no vegan cheese. I think there was, this was like pre-Daya. So I did not find vegan cheese, but what changed it for me is I really learned about what's happening in the dairy industry. And for me that worked because I'm an animal empathizer um, and I'm very sensitive. So learning about dairy farming and relating to these mothers and the way they're treated, I like cheese became revolting to me. So that was very helpful. But I will say that over time, maybe it, it it doesn't take very long. Let's say like six months to a year, maybe two years. Cheese has started to become quite gross to me. Like, if I'm ever in the cheese section, what you, I used to love like stinky cheeses. I mean, I was like a cheese connoisseur, I would make a meal out of like a hunk of stinky cheese. And I loved it. And now when I smell that, I'm like, it smells like a teenage boy's locker room. Like, how did I not notice that before? So your, your taste buds just change. And now we're very blessed to live in a time and place when we can access really incredible fermented, flavorful, uh, whole foods, vegan cheeses. So I buy them sometimes, but it's not uh, a necessary part of my diet. It's definitely something I've weaned off of pun intended, um, a long time ago. And now it's just sort of been nice to have, but you know, the bulk, the bulk of my diet is like grains and legumes and other things.
0: Gotcha. Uh, the weaned off of took me an extra three, four minute seconds there, but it was clever. Um, lastly, cause you've been so generous with our time and we're about to run out of it. Uh, um, what, uh, is there one message that you would like to, to get out to all of the tens of thousands of people who who listen to these. Uh, uh, Aside from check out easyanimalfree.com, follow you on Instagram, where you have a beautiful feed of real food. And uh, and of course, look for your cookbook coming out. Aside from those things, is there a message you would like to to impart uh, before we say goodbye?
1: Sure. Yes. Okay. If you're already vegan, shine your light. We don't persuade people through anger. We persuade them with love, be your best, most loving self, be the person that you would want to be. That's the kind of vegan we need. Don't argue with people online. Um, Don't need to be right. Just shine your light. Sometimes people are going to be wrong. That's okay. Let them be wrong. Keep being a healthy, happy, positive, loving vegan. If you're not already vegan, and you're listening to this anyway, obviously you're moving in the right direction. So good on you. Don't listen to anyone who naysays you, whether they say you shouldn't be going vegan or whether they say you're not vegan enough. Anything that you are doing to become a better person in any way, whether it has to do with veganism or not is a positive thing. So I applaud you and you should applaud yourself.
0: Wonderfully put. Thank you so much, Anna, for for this afternoon. It was fascinating. And uh, there's so much left unsaid, especially on the, psychology, philosophy, law side, which we'll, we'll have to get to it in a round two, but, but thank you for, for spending your time together.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It was my absolute pleasure.